But for those of you who I haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Clay. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is uh, great to see you guys this morning. I usually hang out up front after the service and come on up and say hi. I'd love to chat with you and get to know you just a little bit better. So as Paul mentioned, uh, we're starting a new series that we are going through the next four weeks. We're going to be talking about baptism and communion. This morning, we're talking about communion. Next week, Christian will be back, and he'll be talking about baptism. And, and if you think about it for a minute, baptism and communion are two traditions that Christians have celebrated for the last, uh, really, 2,000 years. They are traditions, but they're traditions that symbolize or express uh, an inward reality in our lives. They're outward expressions of something that is going on in our lives. But the problem with traditions is it's so easy for us to lose sight of their, their original meaning. So think about Thanksgiving for a minute. Thanksgiving coming up, what, in about four weeks or so. Thanksgiving is a time that we set aside to thank God for the blessings that he's given us. But over the years, it's kind of evolved, at least for many of us, into an opportunity to eat a lot of food and watch a lot of football. And we lose sight of the fact that Thanksgiving is about thanking God for the blessings that he's given us. Or think about Christmas. Christmas is about the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But what happens as Thanksgiving ends and we begin to enter into the Christmas season is Christmas is no longer so much about Jesus' birth as it is about decorating, as it is about parties, as it is about buying the presents and rushing out the last minute to buy those presents and wrapping them and giving them to people. And we lose sight of what it was originally intended to be. Or Easter, similarly, is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet, for many people, Easter is nothing more than coloring Easter eggs and looking for chocolate Easter bunnies. And the Easter bunny has a more prominent place at Easter than Jesus himself does. And so sometimes we lose sight of the meaning of those traditions. And the same thing can happen with communion. Communion is supposed to remind us that Jesus loved us enough to die on the cross for our sins. He loved us enough to give his life for us. But so often, we just sort of look at it as this ritual that we go through and we come up and we eat a piece of bread and we drink a cup of wine or a cup of grape juice, and we're really not thinking about the deeper meaning of what communion is actually about. Or for some of us, we don't actually know what it means because we've never been taught it. We've never thought it through. We've never really understood what communion means. And so what I wanna do this morning is step back and take a look kind of uh, with fresh eyes as if we're looking at it for the first time. And those of you who have been through the project know that that's something that we do with several passages of scripture. We say, let's stop for a minute. Let's forget everything we know about this passage of scripture and let's look at it with fresh eyes as if it were seeing it for the first time. And for some of us, that's easy to do because it is the first time that we're looking at those passages, or it is the first time that we're thinking about communion. And so we really don't know what it means. But for others of us, it's become just a ritual that we go through. So what I want us to do this morning is look at it with fresh eyes so that hopefully it becomes new again for us and we recapture the meaning that's behind that tradition. So as we're thinking about communion, the roots of communion trace back to the Last Supper, Jesus' last meal with his disciples. So the night before Jesus died, he got together with his 12 closest friends 
and he shared a meal with them. Somebody took a selfie at that meal and we have it here. Notice how they're all lined up on the one side. You ever wonder about that, how Da Vinci got them all lined up on, on one side of the table there? So, but seriously, a lot of people don't realize that the Last Supper was actually a Jewish Passover Seder. As devout Jews, Jesus and his followers would celebrate Passover every year faithfully as what was for them a very meaningful tradition. Luke, the gospel writer who, who wrote the gospel that's, that's called Luke, he wrote a biography of Jesus. He puts it this way. He says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So what you've got here is a group of 13 Jewish men who were getting together as they had done probably the 13 of them every year for the past three years or so, and separately or with their families for as long as they could remember. They had gotten together year after year after year to celebrate this symbolic meal that was intended to remind them of how God had led their ancestors out of slavery in Egypt. And for Jesus, this was the most important Passover that he had ever celebrated because it was going to be the last Passover that he celebrated before he died. We think of it as his last supper, his last meal before he died. But from a Jewish perspective, it's not just any meal. It's this most important of the symbolic meals that the Jews would eat. During the meal, Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. When we hear those words, we hear the words of communion. Every time that we celebrate communion, we say those words and we can recite them and they can become a ritual. But Jesus is taking these words that were part of the Passover. He's taking the bread that was part of the Passover. He's taking the wine that was part of the Passover and he's infusing new meaning into them. But to get a fuller appreciation as to what was going on that night, I want us to step back and look at the Jewish celebration of Passover. Some of us are familiar with it. When I was growing up, my mom was Jewish. My dad was from a Lutheran background. We would go to my grandmother's house year after year after year and celebrate Passover. For me, it meant absolutely nothing other than the fact that I got to spend time with my cousins who I didn't normally get to see because they lived a few hours away from us. For me, it was a time to spend with family who I wouldn't see on a regular basis. But for devout Jews like Jesus, and like his disciples, it had a much, much richer and deeper and fuller meaning. Passover is the holiday when the Jewish people remind themselves that God brought their ancestors out of slavery in the land of Egypt. The Jews had been enslaved by the Egyptians for about 400 years. They were under the yoke of the Egyptians and they wanted to be freed and God raised up a man named Moses to lead them out of slavery in Egypt. But the Jewish Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, didn't want them to leave. He had this source of free, of cheap labor, labor, and he didn't want them to leave. So he resisted. So God sent 10 different plagues against the Egyptians 
to persuade Pharaoh to let his people go. And there were plagues, everything from gnats on the animals to the Nile River turning to blood. And this happened day after day after day. And yet Pharaoh consistently refused to let the Jewish people leave Egypt. And so the final plague that God sent against the Egyptians was what's known as the death of the firstborns. God said through Moses to Pharaoh that the next night, all throughout the land of Egypt, every firstborn of human beings and of animals was going to die. And God said through Moses to the Israelites, if you want to avoid this plague, then here's what I want you to do. I want each family to take a lamb, an unblemished, perfect lamb, and I want you to slaughter it at twilight, and I want you to take some of the blood, and I want you to rub some of that blood on the top of the door, on the top of the door frame, and some on the two sides of the door frame as well. And when I see that blood, then I'm gonna pass over the house where I see that blood, because that blood signifies that there is a family who lives in that house, who trusts me, who believes in me, who's following after me, who's looking for me to deliver them. And so that's what the Israelites did. And so then when God came, when the angel of death came and killed the firstborn of the Egyptians, he saw the blood on the doorpost of the people of the children of Israel and he passed over them and didn't kill them. And God went on to tell his people, he said, this is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, as a lasting ordinance. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. God gave his people the Passover meal as a way to remind them of what he had done for them when he led them out of slavery in Egypt. He knew that it was gonna be easy for them to forget. He knew that when the generation who was alive at the time that God led them out of Egypt, he knew that when they died, their children and their children's children and, and so on would not remember because they had not been there. And so God gave them this ceremony. He gave them this tradition. He gave them this symbolic meal so that they would remember what he had done for them, and they would continue to look to him, to trust in him, to meet their needs, to deliver them from whatever situation they were in, because he was the same God who cared for them now as the God who cared for them when he delivered them from slavery in Egypt. But a few weeks later, if you've ever read through the book of Exodus, a few weeks later, the Israelites had already forgotten what God had done for them. God had led them out of Egypt in a miraculous way. They had crossed the Red Sea in a miraculous way. And just three days after they crossed the Red Sea, they began to complain to God and say, God, where's the water? Where's the food? Have you brought us out of the land of Egypt just to let us die in the desert? Now stop and think about it. 
Three days earlier, he led them across the Red Sea. Three weeks or so before that, he had miraculously led them out of Egypt and done all these incredible signs and wonders for them. And here they are saying, God, have you brought us out of Egypt in order to let us die in the desert? What they should have said is, God, we're hungry, we're thirsty. You're the God who met our needs by bringing us out of Egypt. You're the God who protected us from Pharaoh's army when he was chasing after us by leading us through the Red Sea. You're the God who can provide food. You're the God who can provide water. Would you please provide the food and water that we need? But instead they complained against Moses and they complained against God and they forgot what he had done for them. And yet in spite of their complaining, God provided all of the food and all of the water that they needed for the next 40 years, except over that 40 years, over and over and over again, they complained to God and they said, we don't have food, we don't have water, we're afraid of this, what's gonna happen with that? And instead of turning to him and saying, please meet our needs, they whined and they complained at him over and over and over again. Yet God was always faithful to them through those next 40 years. Then he leads them into the promised land, the land of Canaan, this land flowing with milk and honey. And at first everything was great and they're following God and they're trusting after God. But as time went on, they began to turn away from him. And if you've ever read through the book of Judges, you see that there's a cycle of seven times over and over and over again. God delivers his people from their enemies and then they forget about him. And then God delivers them from their enemies again and they forget about him again. And it goes over and over and over again, seven times. And then you read through the rest of the Old Testament and you see that king after king after king led the people of Israel astray, led them to follow after false gods, to worship gods other than the one who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And the story of Israel was over and over and over again, God blessing them and them forgetting God, God warning them and, God and them ignoring God. And this is the story of the nation of Israel. All God wanted to do was pour out his love and his grace and his blessings on the children of Israel. And all they needed to do, all he was asking them to do was look to him to meet their needs. And yet they kept trying to do things on their own and live as if God did not exist. And they experienced the consequences. But it would have been so much better for them if they had kept their eyes on God. Now, it's easy for us to, to criticize the nation of Israel, the people of Israel back in the Old Testament. But if we're honest with ourselves, we do the exact same thing. We take our eyes off God all the time. And Christian was talking about that last week. When we wallow in guilt, we're forgetting that God has forgiven us through Jesus' death and resurrection. And so there is no condemnation for those of us who are trusting in Jesus' death and in his resurrection. When we allow other people's opinions of us to control us, and we all do that from time to time, when we do that, we're forgetting that we are loved by the God of the universe and that there is no opinion, no opinion that is more important than his. And that when he loves us in spite of what everybody else may say about us or to, uh, or say 
to us. His opinion matters more than everybody else's opinion all put together. When we treat other people harshly, we're forgetting that God has treated us with so much more grace, so much more mercy, so much more love than we could ever possibly deserve. When we refuse to forgive other people, we're forgetting that God has forgiven us, that he has forgiven us even at the cost of his son's life, that he has forgiven us and he's called us to live together in a community of people who recognize that ultimately our worth comes from the fact that we are created in the image of God. And so when we, for, when we fail, when we refuse to forgive other people, we are treating other people in a way that is antithetical to who we are as a community of followers of Jesus. We are so much better off when we keep our eyes on Jesus. And yet, like Christian was talking about last week, we are so often like Peter. We take our eyes off Jesus and we look around us at the wind and the waves. We look at the circumstances. We look at the political situation. We look at the economic situation. We listen to what other people are saying and we let all of those voices speak so much louder in our ears than the voice of the one who called us to get out of the boat and to trust him. And when we listen to those other voices, life does not go the way that God intended for it to, for it to go for us. And so we need that reminder over and over and over again that we have a God in heaven who loves us so much more than we could ever imagine. And we need to keep our eyes fixed on him. We forget God, but God never forgets us. Just think through some of the sweep of biblical history. When Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to hide from God. But what did God do? Adam, where are you? God knew full well where Adam was. He didn't need Adam to tell him where he was. What was going on was God was pursuing Adam. He wanted Adam to turn back to God, not to forget him, but to turn back to him and trust him, not to be afraid of him, but to come to him and ask for and find forgiveness. When Israel forgot that uh, when Israel forgot that God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt, God didn't say, forget you. God said, I'm going to pursue you. When Israel turned their backs on God and followed after other gods, worshipped false gods, yes, God disciplined them, but he never forgot them, and he continued to pursue them. If you've ever read the parable of the prodigal son, the son turns his back on the father and effectively says, Dad, I wish you were dead. I'd rather have your money than you. That God, the father represents God. The son, in some sense, represents us. That son goes off, runs away from his father. And yet when he comes to his senses and comes back to his father, where's his father? He's standing outside looking, waiting for his son to come home. When we forget God, when we forget his love and his power, God doesn't forget us, 
but instead he pursues us. And that's what communion is about. That's what Passover was about, but that's what communion is about for us. Communion is a reminder that God pursues us even though it cost Jesus his life. So when Jesus and his disciples were celebrating Passover that night, that night in 33 AD, just before Jesus died, they were continuing a tradition that had begun 1,400 years earlier. It was a tradition that reminded them that God had delivered their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. So it's a tradition with which they were intimately familiar. I know for certain that Jesus had never lost sight of the meaning of that tradition. I hope that the disciples had not lost sight of the meaning of that tradition. But what Jesus did with that tradition was something shocking. It's something earth-shattering. It's something that would have rocked the world of those 12 Jewish men who are celebrating Passover with him. Read, I want to read again these verses, and I want you to look at it through fresh eyes, imagining that you were one of the disciples there, and watch what Jesus is saying here. Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This bread, this matzah, that you have been eating your entire life to remind you that when your ancestors left Egypt, they didn't have time to bake bread made with yeast. They had to get out of there quickly. So you eat this bread that's made without yeast to remind you that they had to get up and leave Egypt quickly because there was a very small window when Pharaoh was going to be willing to let them go. This cup, this cup of wine that reminds you that God delivered your ancestors from slavery in Egypt, these elements that are a reminder of what God had done before, they're not ultimately about physical deliverance from Egypt. They're ultimately about me, about Jesus. They are ultimately pointing to my body. They're ultimately pointing to my blood. They're ultimately pointing to my death, which provides you spiritual deliverance from sin and death. Not physical deliverance from slavery in Egypt, but spiritual deliverance from slavery to sin and slavery to death. So Jesus takes these familiar elements that they had been celebrating for 1,400 years and says, I am the fulfillment of the Passover sacrifice. I am essentially, Jesus is saying, that sacrificial lamb. And if you read through the rest of the New Testament, you know that in several places, Jesus is referred to as the lamb of God. So that when the blood was put on the top of the doorframe and on the two sides for the Israelites to remind them that God had led them out of slavery in Egypt, now we see that blood as the blood of the Lamb of God who's leading us out of slavery to sin and the, leading us out of slavery to death. The blood of the Passover lamb protected the Israelites from physical death. The blood of the Lamb of God 
protects us from spiritual death. Jesus' death brings us life, and that's why we celebrate communion over and over and over again, because we need to be reminded that Christ died for our sins. We need to declare to ourselves and to one another that Jesus died so that we could live. You know, we lead incredibly busy lives in this area in which we live. We go to work, we go to school, we've got things going on, civic organizations, clubs, all sorts of things that we're doing. We drive our kids to different sports practices and everything is going on in our lives. And over the next two months, it's just gonna get busier and busier and busier as we enter into this holiday season. We make time to celebrate birthdays. We make time to celebrate holidays. We make time to celebrate birthdays because we wanna remember the people who are important to us. We take time to celebrate holidays because we wanna remember the events that are important to us. We make time to celebrate communion for the same basic reason because it is of utmost importance what communion represents. It's at the core of our faith as followers of Jesus. And Jesus told his followers to celebrate communion as a way of remembering what he had done for them. Look again at verse 19. He took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We do celebrate or we do remember, maybe is a better way of putting it, the deaths of people who are important to us. We celebrate Memorial Day. We remember 9-11. Those of us who have lost, lost loved ones remember the day that they died because they're important to us and we never wanna lose their, the memories that we have of them. But communion is more than just an ordinary memorial because Jesus was more than just an ordinary man and he didn't die in ordinary death. Jesus is the son of God who died for the sins of the world, who died for my sins, who died for your sins. And communion is a reminder that that extraordinary man died an extraordinary death so that we could have an extraordinary life. When I remember, when I remind myself, when I'm cognizant of the fact that Jesus gave his life for me, my whole outlook on life is gonna change. Rather than seeing God as someone who's always mad at me, I see him as the one who loved me more than I could ever imagine and who would, will pursue me even when I forget about him. Instead of thinking that I have to earn his favor or that I'm good enough to have already earned his favor, I realize that I am desperately needy, that I am unbelievably blessed. I realize that I am deeply broken and yet I'm completely forgiven. I have a realistic view of who I am, but I also have a realistic view of who God is. And that changes my outlook, that changes the way that I see myself. Instead of, instead of looking at other people as obstacles to my agenda or as means to my ends, I see them the way that God sees them. I see them as people for whom Christ died and who are loved by the God of the universe. And it changes the way that I relate to them. Rather than seeing my church 
as, as a, a Christian social club or a Christian civic organization, I become convinced that it is God's instrument to declare his glory, to declare his praises, to tell the world about the reconciliation, about the hope that's available because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the hope of the world and a world that desperately needs God. That's how I see church when I remember that Jesus died and rose again for me. If I'm not careful, it's so easy for me to lose sight of who Jesus is, what he's done for me, and how that affects every area of my life. And that's why I need to celebrate communion. And that's why you, if you're a follower of Jesus, need to celebrate communion as well. In a couple of weeks, November 13th, after the second service, we're going to celebrate communion together. If you're not ready for that, if you say, I'm not sure, I don't believe that Jesus died for my sins. I'm not sure about that. I still need to explore that and think about that a little bit more. Don't celebrate communion because you don't want to do it if you don't actually meet it. God doesn't want us to do it just as a ritual. God doesn't want us to do it because we think it's the way that we earn his favor. He wants us to celebrate communion if we are doing it with our hearts, grateful and thankful for what he's done for us. But if you are ready to celebrate communion, if you're a follower of Jesus and you say, yes, I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and I know that he rose again to give me new life, let me encourage you to schedule that time. It takes about 25, 30 minutes after the second service, two weeks from today. Let me encourage you to come back on November 13th and celebrate communion with us. I need to be reminded, you need to be reminded we all need to be reminded that Jesus gave his life for us. And that's why he gave us communion. And that's why we, as followers of Christ at Renaissance Church, celebrate communion. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful ultimately for the sacrifice of your son that you gave us, for his death, for his resurrection, for the new life, the forgiveness that I and that we can have because of what Jesus has done. But thank you too this morning for communion. Thank you for giving us this symbol, this tradition, this reminder of what Jesus has done for us. And I pray for myself, I pray for all of us here who are followers of Christ that when we celebrate communion, we would do it with grateful hearts, with minds that are focused on you, thankful for what you've done, not just as a ritual, but as a meaningful reminder of your incredible love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.